There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Hello, everyone. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden. I'm coming to you from New York City. Now, the fellows are off today. They've been busy representing the undefeated at various sporting events like the NFL Combine, the Big 12 Women's Basketball Tournament, and the CIAA and Sunbelt Men and Women's Basketball Tournaments. Uh, they're learning a different side of the sports industry. Uh, things like how tournaments and major events are facilitated and promoted. So uh, you're stuck with me until they get back. We've got a great lineup for you today. Uh, first of all, uh, we're going to talk about the college admission scandal with senior writer for The Undefeated, Michael Fletcher, and CEO of the Global Sports Institute at Arizona State University, Ken Shropshire. Later on, we're going to catch up with former fellows Simone Benson and Kyler Wright. They'll share their thoughts on what's going on with R. Kelly and Leaving Neverland, the documentary about two men who accused Michael Jackson of sexual assault. Now, before we dive into all that, I'd like to take a moment, I wish I could take more, to just acknowledge the the victims who who died in the mass shootings at two mosques in New Zealand. Uh, As of Friday afternoon, 49 people were killed in what's been called uh, just a, a surprising and tragic tragic terrorist attack. Uh, The uh, suspects in custody has been described as extremists who may have been inspired by hate speech. Uh, We're going to be watching this story develop and unfold, but after a week of discussions about hate speech, it just makes us want to ask everyone, every single person, to watch the words and, of course, uh, be careful and, and be safe and think about how you can go beyond merely offering condolences and blame, but doing things in your own circle of friends, in your own life, that's really going to affect deep-seated change and bring us all toward this world of peace and harmony that I think the vast majority of us really want. Uh, there's no easy way to transition out of, out of that segment with such a tragic uh, loss of life, but... We'll try. Last week, about 50 people were charged in what has been called the largest college admission scam in history. The individuals charged in the case range from coaches to administrators to actresses. Most are super wealthy parents who are accused of getting their kids into various college programs by paying millions of dollars in bribes, cheating on standardized tests, falsifying disabilities, or faking athletic achievements. The coaches and administrators allegedly involved come from a range of schools, from Yale and Georgetown to USC and Wake Forest. They are said to have received hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes, up to $1.3 million. The FBI stumbled onto the scam while they were investigating a Medicare scam. And about the scandal, they said, quote, there can be no separate college admission system for the wealthy. And I'll add, there will not be a separate criminal justice system either. 
End quote. There's a lot to unpack here and to help us make sense of all of it and what it means for students who can't afford to bribe their way into college. We have Michael Fletcher, who's the senior writer for The Undefeated. Welcome back to the show, Fletch. Hey, always good to be here, Bill. And we've also got Ken Shropshire on the line. Uh, Ken is the uh, the CEO of the Global Sports Institute at Arizona State University. Hey, Ken, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Bill. Good, good to be on. First of all, let's just start. The Mike, you just wrote a, a great piece for the, uh, the Undefeated. And again, you know, we're all veteran news people, and it kind of takes a lot to sort of move us off our spot. But frankly, I was really... I was really stunned when I heard this. Uh, Mike, what was what was your thought? No, similar, Bill. I mean, it's one of the more outlandish stories I've heard in some time. You know, And it had to do with just kind of the extreme, so the extreme amount of money, the extreme level of deceit and, 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 and you know, faking disabilities, you know, like you said, lying about athletic achievements and all of that. So I was stunned by that. But at the same time, to me, this just illuminated kind of what goes on all the time in less extreme ways uh, with, you know, highly selective colleges. You have people using all different kinds, you know, trying to get in all kinds of side and back doors to schools that are ultra competitive. I mean, you have on one track, you'll have um, students who play all kinds of lesser sports, so-called lesser sports, you know, less popular sports from water polo to tennis, to, to golf or something like that, you know, sort of using that as a way in. So that allows you to kind of circumvent the normal, uh, you know, admission standards, if you will, at, at highly selective universities. You have legacy students who's, whose parents attended or grandparents may have attended these highly selective schools who get a little leg up on admission, again, to these highly selective schools. You have big donors, people who are mega donors to schools whose um, offspring get special consideration in the admissions process. So, you know, I know the prosecutor said there'll, there'll be no separate admission standard for the wealthy, but there really is. Right. You know, granted, not as uh, kind of outlandish as this, you know, may be, but you certainly have these other back doors, and I think this scandal kind of kind of brings that all back to, to, to mind. Yeah. Ken, Ken, what do you think? I mean, I mean, like, like my said, wealthy parents have been using resources to get their kids into elite programs for years, but why do you think that this scandal... And everything else is going has caught so much uh, attention. Yeah, I mean, I used to be at, at University of Pennsylvania, and my office was in this building called Huntsman Hall, which cost forty million dollars or something like that. And John Huntsman, uh, the guy that founded the company that used to make those styrofoam clamshells for McDonald's, <laughs> gave him the money, and all his kids went to Wharton and. We didn't really think much about it, and still don't. I mean, you know, he he put a building up there, and if you talk about above, that's above board. And if you get some priority admissions, that's you know, it's unfortunate that, that we as black folks are not building buildings for schools. But you know, that that that, that somehow is a little bit more digestible than there's this back channel that you break off a little bit to coaches, and you have to have a middleman doing it. And these people of privilege, it's money that doesn't mean anything to them, but it's not significant, and it's not even going to to the university. So it, it, it's a, it's a, an exposure. It's almost like now we see two buildings. You get the you know the buildings that people pay for, and then this this other path that 
you know, I always describe these things as you know, secrets from the black man. It's just something that we had had no awareness of. And at the same time, we've been receiving so much criticism over the years for affirmative action, for admissions, for athletic abilities. Well, now it's a whole different different conversation, I think. And, and it'll be interesting to me to see uh, how long this, this conversation extends and if there is a a real reality check and understanding that, that there are all kinds of, of priorities that are given and the, the least of your concern should be about athletics. Least of concern should be any kind of priority that's given because someone's a descendant of slavery. And the idea that you are a, a descendant of privilege, uh, you know, that that to me should not be uh, even in the same conversation. There should be an elevation of understanding about why there has been this need to find ways to get people from communities that have not been in these institutions in. This this just shows further uh, how we were restrained from being in these places. Maybe there's an argument to be made for legacy, you know, students to go, you know, to have a kind of a, a leg up in the admissions process. Maybe there's an argument to be made for, you know, people like the the children of uh, John Huntsman to, um, you know, to be able to go to a school where someone's, you know, contributed $40 million. But if that's the case, let's not have all of this critique and criticism of and, and sort of <laughs> the downright looking down your nose at people who get in through affirmative action or get in because they may be good football or basketball players or really fast at track. And those are really the sports where African-Americans are getting in the college, and you have a ton of other sports that are almost all white, where, okay, students may not be getting full scholarships, but they're certainly getting the missions priority. So, you know, let's put this all on the table, and maybe there's a, you know you can have an argument in favor of these things, and let's do away with this myth of the meritocracy if that's the case, you know, because you can argue that, hey, if someone gives us $40 million, that's doing a lot of good, and so we let four or five of his kids, in, you know, or his nephews or whatever, maybe there's something to that, but let's not have the hypocrisy. I, I wonder if this blows, you know, there's a suit at Harvard uh, where a group of students, I think Asian students, some people say yeah. at the incursion, you know, um, saying that they've been discriminated against because of this affirmative action. I wonder if this kind of blows that out the water. And, and, and you know, because they say, well, wait a minute. that We need to investigate all of this. I mean, because there are, there are, there are a lot of, this is almost pork barrel, uh, pork, pork barrel uh, projects in, in, in Olympics, I mean, in, in admissions. I'm wondering, if this thing blows the, the the lid off of that suit and really just kind of says, wait a minute, let's follow the truth where it leads because, you know, I, I, maybe the entire admissions process is suspect. Go no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, let's just step back and look at this this whole whole thing and, and figure out how to how, how do we fix this and, and, and do this better. And I'll, I'll throw something else in, in this, too, and I want to be careful of in, in saying this, the you know the day before this came down, uh, Jerome Allen, the, the the former head coach at, at Stanford at, at, at Penn, yeah. um, testified that he had received three hundred thousand dollars to help some kid get admitted from which it's sort of the same scenario, but it was a, a standalone case. And I'm I'm just you know he, he's he's a friend and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, so some of this is is self serving, but some of it is. You know, we do have the the uh, positioning of the Manafort moment. 
I want to I see if there's any kind of different treatment from that standalone case with an African-American man who, who did who did what sounds like very similar kind of he lets a, he puts a kid on a list that's not a real basketball player. You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, you mentioned the Harvard case where, you know, at least the people named in the suit are these Asian American students who, or applicants, you know, who, who feel like they're getting short fifth because of affirmative action. You've got the feeling that I don't know which way that case is going to go. It's in the hands of a judge in Boston now. But like you, I'm curious to see how that's adjudicated, you know, because I, I think there's a lot there. And hopefully the thing even more important to me is I hope this helps like sort of like take away that attitude, that, yeah. that feeling, that, that, that disdain that at least some African-Americans feel yeah. on these, um, you know, campuses of the highly selective universities where there's always this kind of overlay of like, do you belong here? Yeah. And, you know, let's, let's yeah. do away with that. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah, but yeah. I don't know if that'll be the case, but that's something I like to see go away. Cause the number of students you talk to students, they say they feel that way. You know, they always had to like prove themselves every day. You know, you can, you mentioned double standards. Um, there's a case of Kelly Williams Bolar, who's a single black mother who was jailed for 10 days about, uh, for, for lying about the district her kids lived in just so they could attend an elite private high school in Ohio. Now, she was jailed for 10 days. Do you, do you consider this to be just as bad as parents involved in the, in this, in the scandal? Uh, and, and do you think any of those parents are going to see any jail time? Well, I, I, I think what, what this, this, you know, varsity blues, this kind of elite scandal problem is, is much bigger than what she did. I mean, the idea of, you know, putting grandma's address or, or, you know, fake address so you can go to, you know, one school as opposed to another. You know, the punishment for that has always struck me as disturbing. Uh, and certainly for her to have done jail time sets the baseline of, of, of what should happen with, with these other folks. You know, my, you know, if I have any concern for, for any group within this, this whole, it really is for those kids who didn't know and their parents did this. Now, I don't know how how far you could go in the process and not know as a kid right. that you're, you're getting some kind of priority. But, it, you know, it, those those could be the ones really harmed. And, and certainly, I mean, SC's, uh, I heard today is, you know, if you uh, are, are recently admitted under this scheme, your admission is going to be denied, oh, and they're evaluating everybody else case by case. Ken, you, you, you tweeted a lot, uh, out a lot about Dave uh, David Mamet. And he was tweeting out, he doesn't see any difference between bribing the building committee or somebody else. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't think the, the parents should, the, he thinks the parents should be found not, not guilty and just told not to do it again. Is, is, is that, is that too easy? I think it's too easy. Because I think, I think, you know, as we were saying that, you know, somebody funds a building on campus. That that is a that's you know that is certainly more above board than this idea of uh, channeling funds um, you know back channel you know, I don't know if these were cash payments or how this was done um, but but none of that it was was above board like it's one of the payments was at one point three uh, to the top athletic department official at USC was well, that one point three had been given to the to the athletic department and uh, the kid was admitted. You know, is that better? I mean, you know, actually, it does it does sit better with me? 
then you you're doing some underhand underhand payment that's, that's not above board. So so I think there is a, is a difference. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's matter of degrees, but but I, I think it is a much better better path. Mm. You, you know, now, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I I would say it's much better too because I mean, at least in theory, if you give the money to the institution, the benefit you know is shared widely, presumably by the entire university community, you know, so there's that. And, and and I think that there's an argument for that. You know, you're never going to take away kind of the privilege that comes with with wealth, in a sense. I mean, that's that's part of why everybody wants to be rich, right? But there is, I mean, the, the idea of sort of bribing somebody and, and having that kind of private gain rather than some kind of, some kind of institutional gain, I, I see two different scenarios altogether there. What do you guys, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, I'm listening to this, and it seems like they keep trying to some kind of way blaming football, basketball. They can always brag that into the argument, you know. And, and I'm wondering if you guys think that they're going to find some way because I'm, I, you, you know, this is we're going into March Madness, and you've got all these kids that we're going to be watching, particularly at the Power Five conference. Zion Williams, who are going to be gone, you know, they're they're they're, they're there for six 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 months and gone. Is this going to adversely, you know, I, you know, when you're black? Somehow you you always take the blame. So although this is this has to do with very wealthy white people, do you think this is going to adversely affect where most of our kids are, and that's football, basketball at these big programs? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if this if this is a uh, a shiny object moment to take the focus away <laughs> a, a bit from from us and, and those issues. You know, the one thing that, that I keep, you know. I, I, it's almost like the you know mass murder or something. We're trying to we all sitting back and so hope nobody's black. Hope the shooter's not black. Right, right. So, so I've been kind of watching this to see. <laughs> you know, most of these coaches, you know, Nick Saban or somebody like that, they're not going to waste a slot on somebody they can't play. I mean, they're, they're you know maybe Nick Saban gets paid the big bucks. So, you know, maybe that's that's why he can he can you know ignore a you know offer of four hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Uh, but but the positive is that that those sports, the the, the two re- big revenue sports, largely aren't involved in this. So 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 I'm not sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know either. And and the thing is funny when I think about even the you know the big revenue sports, I, I think about them in in tears. You know, like you know we all see Zion Williamson, you know R.J. Barrett, we see the one and done guys, but they're like. The, the tip of the tip. I mean, you guys, as you guys well know, I mean, these are the super elite guys. And when I think of college basketball, I, I think more of whatever. I live in Baltimore. I go into a Loyola of Maryland game right. or a UMBC game. It, right. You know, it's not, you know, going to a Coppin game. It's not, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not, I mean, there's money there. It's not that, the money isn't that big. And, and certainly the athletes aren't. You know, no one's asking them to go pro after a year or two. So I think there's kind of this this tier of guy, you know, the, and the, the, how many are there, eight, ten guys, 15 maybe, you know, who will go, you know, one and done. But other than that, it's, you know, it's not as glamorous as a lot of people think. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't. Yeah, I, w- so, I will say, you know, I would venture to bet that all those big – because you got – remember, football, you got all these walk-ons. And I know that there are some favors being handed out. You know, somewhere in that, in that in that pool of walk-ons, there's some kid there who's probably there as walk-on Alabama as, as a favor. I remember cynically Jerry Tarkany would have a couple of uh, uh, really smart white kids on the end of his bench just to prop up the GPA. So, you right. know, I mean, I think that there's always 
you know, there's always a way to get around it. But I think you're right that by and large, football, basketball, the, the guys, the athletes, pretty much carry their their weight. Let me ask you this before we let you uh, before I let you guys go. Um, there, there's some students and parents that filed a class action lawsuit against USC, UCLA, and some other college involved in the scandal. And their particular these students were rejected from the university. In light of this scandal, how how do you how successful do you think that suit will be? I mean, do you think this suit changes all of that? You know, it's, it's hard to say because I, I think it would really depend on the numbers, right? How many kids were actually involved? How many kids got into USC through this scheme? It would seem like the principal is there. Clearly, they took slots that other deserving students didn't get. But I don't know how a court sort of tries to sort of get to the level of, well, you know, if A, how many slots there were, B, if that slot were available with with these, you know, the students who, you know, are named as, in this class, would they have been the ones to, to benefit? I mean, it feels like there's something there, but I think we have to see this play out more than that. Yeah, and I, I agree in that the, the, the affirmative action lawsuits that were filed in, in Texas, the, the plaintiff there, that's largely what, what she was saying, but for... Uh, these lesser qualified black people, I, I, I would have gotten in, but in in the end, the, the court's analysis is like, you know, well, you don't know. You know all, all kinds of things going through the admissions process. The, the other, other piece of the, these lawsuits that's coming up, which kind of kind of funny, is is uh, I think a, a stamp, one of Stanford versions of this says that this cheapens the value of my degree in the long run. The fact that that uh, people may have been admitted that shouldn't be there, and they'll carry the same degree as me. So, so there's some interesting theories that are out there. And I don't think it cheapens the degree because I think there are two things here. Like people talk about, in these selective colleges, you really have to look in the mirror too. Like in, in, in a sense of, you know, like some schools you have a school like Harvard, ninety five percent of the applicants don't get in. You know, it doesn't mean that like, you know, a lot of students who were rejected or somehow somehow couldn't hang at Harvard or couldn't do well at Harvard. It's just that you have this kind of ultra competitive process. You know, I would recommend any listener to go back and read this online. Read. John F. Kennedy's Harvard essay that he wrote back whenever, you know, in the 50s or whenever he went to Harvard, it's like a paragraph. It's something that would never be able to say. And we could put, you know, and it goes to show you how the admissions, you know, process has changed. So so I don't think it cheapens the degree because it's two things. One thing to get into school, then you have to perform to get the degree. So right. I, don't, I don't think, you know, one, you know, is necessarily tied to the other. Because I think a lot of students who were rejected are just about as good or were as high performing in high school or whatever as many people who are admitted to many of these schools. Yeah, and no, I, I agree. And I, and I think what we're going to find, and, and, and Bill, you got me my wheel turning in terms of what, what football teams and basketball, basketball teams. So anybody with, with the opportunity to do it may to some degree let people in. So I think what we're going to find is more of this happens than than we have contemplated before. So, you know, by virtue of this being pretty universal, you know, all the schools kind of, you know, hold their position. And maybe they're all lesser so, which which is not a bad thing. This whole idea that some places are so elite that, that, that they don't have these kinds of problems is, you know, is just a, the wrong way to think about it. Now, now you played at, 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 at uh, Stanford, right? You played football at Stanford, kid. What, what do you think? I mean, because Stanford was one of the schools involved in this. Well, First of all, because you know, some of my old teammates be listening. I, I practice hard. I don't know how much I played back then, but that's a whole nother, another story. That's, so, that's another so, podcast. Uh, I, was, I, was out, I was out there for four years, but right, I wasn't out there. Right. Um, <laughs> I 
I mean, Stanford was kind of this, you know, more of a regional kind of place back when I was there than it is now. So the value of my degree has increased, you know, dramatically from from what it was back then. So I, I, I just I just don't think it's going to have that much of, of an impact in, in Stanford. Yeah, from what I understand so far, I've, I mentioned sailing. Before, you know, as a sailing coach, and this, you know, so it's kind of this this one off kind of thing. I think you know the school that that seems to be getting the most attention is USC, so it'll be interesting to see. And that's a whole other show, what should happen to the athletic administrators there, and, and, and I think there's some targeting going on there. Yeah. yeah. Now, we all have children, and, you know, as parents, we will do anything, anything to help our children get ahead. In the, in the, in the two minutes we have left, each of you, how, how do you think this is going to shake out? I mean, if, if, if do you think this, this scam is going to have any impact? Or do you think it'll kind of die down in a year or so, and it'll be business business as usual? You know, I, I doubt that it's going to have like a long term impact. I mean, I wish it would in a way. In a way, you know, as much as it illuminates kind of the hypocrisy of of some of these, you know, highly selective universities, it also kind of shines a light on the mania of many parents. Like you think about the idea of like, first of all, is it really worth paying whatever if you're already uber rich? Paying what hundreds of thousands of dollars to get your kid into, say Stanford or even USC. If they couldn't get into USC, could they have gone to Pepperdine? Could they have gone somewhere else? I mean, not every college in the, in the United States is highly selective. Most are not. It's really just that top tier that is. You know, SAT prep people. I mean, all of this stuff is just. It just feels like it's going way too far. But you know, unfortunately, I did, do not see that changing. Yeah, the the number of people that use consultants now, you know, legitimate consultants to to help their kids do the applications and essays and that sort of stuff, has really really skyrocketed to a to a crazy level. I mean, you, you are almost committing child abuse if you don't use some of your well earned funds to help your kid through the process. Unlike you know us when we were like filling out and getting it in and getting it done on time, and you know maybe mama yelled and screaming about you said you were going to get it in. But otherwise, there wasn't a whole lot of lot of involvement. But the one thing that, that I I do see coming out of this, especially in these schools, they're going to try to uh, make sure this doesn't happen again. It will be that when a coach sends over their list, there's going to be a, have to be some supporting documentation in a way that maybe it wasn't there before. Uh, so you know, in, in tennis and sports like that, there are all these rankings you can turn stuff in or blue chip lists for the other sports. I don't know if they have that for sailing or not, but they're going to have to have, find something to say. This is why this person's on on this list. <laughs> right? Can she swim? <laughs> yeah, you're on the swimming team. You can't swim. That should be you know you you bring him out to the pool and have him jump in. Wait a minute, man. Jack, she can't even swim. What are you talking about? <laughs> hey, our guest has been has been Michael Fletcher. Uh, Fletcher is a senior writer for The Undefeated. And, of course, uh, Ken Shropshire is the CEO of the Global Sports Institute at Arizona State University. Hey, uh, Shrop, Fletch, thank you guys so much, man. This, this was great. Thank you. Anytime. Enjoy it. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll catch up with former Roden Fellows, Simone Benson and Kyla Wright, about grad school, R. Kelly, and more. Stay tuned. <laughs> Uh, the Rotten Fellows Program uh, is a year-long program that trains student journalists from uh, historically black colleges and universities to produce multimedia content for the undefeated. And once you leave the program, uh, we still try to keep in touch. 
Uh, fortunately, two members of the first class of fellows, Simone Benson of Morgan State University uh, and Kyla Wright of Hampton, are with us today. Welcome back to my world, ladies. Hi. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is so exciting. And, and listen, I, I want to hear uh, what you guys have been up to since you left the program, and then want to get into uh, your thoughts about what's going on with R. Kelly and this new documentary about uh, Michael Jackson's alleged sex abuse. But let's start with Simone Benson, not just because she go, went to Morgan, my alma mater. But, <laughs> but Simone, what, 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 what doing that? Yeah, yeah, always. <laughs> um, so I've been, I actually work at, in the, communi- um, the School of Global Journalism and Communication at Morgan State University. I am the director of the Innovation Collaboration Center. So I actually get to work with the student journalists coming up and then help them create stories. I'm actually on a project right now um, about opioid addiction in Baltimore, Mm. and I'm coordinating that project. So I've been uh, still, you know, doing things in the field, and I start graduate school in the fall at the University of Maryland College Park, Philip Merrill School of Journalism. So it's been kind of busy. (laughs) Yes. Well, you always, you were busy when you were in the program. What about you, Kyle? I know that you've been doing everything. We're running for president. What, what, What have you been up to? Yeah, so um, after I finished the Rodin Fellowship, I studied abroad at the Beijing Institute of Technology in Beijing, China, summer 2018. I went back to China with the National Association of Black Journalists for international reporting trip um, at the end of 2018. My current internship is with NASA as a science communications intern. And I'm uh, wrapping up my senior year at Hampton, and um, in the fall, I will be attending Syracuse University for my master's in magazine, newspaper, and online journalism at the SI Newhouse School. Congratulations to you both. That's that's great. I, I want to thank ask, you. That's really really spectacular. Thank you. I'm just curious, how did um, as you think back on it, because you've now been a year removed from the program, we've got a new class of of fellows. Um, what do you think of the program now that you've been away with? How did it help you or, or hurt you? How did it help in terms of doing what you're doing now? <laughs> now, now, now that you've had a chance to kind of think about it. Well, it definitely helped, especially for um, me as a graduate, getting into the graduate school. It helped me that I had a lot of material and I had a lot of experience. Um, so that was very helpful. And it also helped me to grow as a journalist as a whole being out on the field and being there as opposed to just theory of what you're taught in school. So it just helped you all, helped me all the way around just as I go forward in my journalism career. Yeah, and me as well, I would definitely say the same thing, just in helping me with my skills. I feel like I have a little bit of a leg up over some of my counterparts as far as having experience with the online publication, especially one that's so well known and just with it standing out on so many applications when applying to grad school or other internships, fellowships, programs, and overall always having those connections that I can always go back to. I still, obviously, as you guys know, I still keep in contact with, you know, Aaron and Mr. Roden and our former fellows from our class and keep in contact with the new fellows as much as I can. So it just, teaches lifelong skills, especially the ones you need if you want to be prosperous in the journalism field and in the industry overall. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it was great having you guys. You guys were uh, 
part of the uh, the first class. So as such, you will always have a special place in our hearts, and we follow you and cheer for you. And it's you know really great uh, that uh, you guys are going to grad school. It'll be tremendous. Last thing about the program, I know that they're always Donovan and Isaiah were on a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a couple of the fellows, and they were telling them stuff that they learned. Uh, but they also gave a couple of tips. Uh, what would you, how would you tell them to maximize their experience? You know, knowing what you know now, what tips would you give them and us in terms of maximizing their time in the, in the fellowship? Definitely take advantage of all of your resources. I think we didn't really understand everything that we had when we had it in the fellowship. And now I'm starting to see that as far as, like I said earlier, the connections that we had, the people who we had literally at the the, our fingertips, that we had them in the palm of our hands. So all of those connections that you can make, make sure that any and everyone you can talk to, anyone you can meet, you slide your resume, your business card to, you never know who you'll need for a job, an internship, a letter of recommendation, anything, because it all goes really far. And considering that you all are still in undergrad, you definitely need those skills, not only for undergrad, but mainly for your current experience, but also your future experiences too. You most likely nine out, nine times out of ten need to lean back on those people. So I think people skills are definitely the most important because you always hear about networking, connections, and journalism. Uh, my advice would be to just take in this experience as a way to grow, also as a person. Because I know for me, we've had plenty of talks and to help me grow as a person and talk, you know, in this being in the industry in general, and also just, like I said, taking, taking advantage of the people you meet and networking, and also um, use this time to make mistakes and grow from them, because I think that a lot of times people are scared to make mistakes, but I think that it's okay. Make your mistakes now and grow and learn from them. Yeah, just switching gears, uh, uh, I know you guys, particularly because you are journalists, and Simone, you're you're, you've got tremendous editing skills and you're into documenting. What did you guys um, make of uh, what's going on with R. Kelly and the new documentary uh, about Michael Jackson's alleged sex abuse? Uh, Samal, let's, let's start with you. What, what, do you. what do you make of those two stories? It's, it's a lot going on. Um, <laughs> well, I'll start with the R. Kelly. He just needs to go to jail. I just, I just, need, just need him to just go ahead and get locked up. Because it's honestly, before he got acquitted, it doesn't mean he was innocent, and it's just, I always was told if somebody tells you the same, if three people tell you the same thing, it's probably true. And I just, uh, you know, with the documentary about him that came out, I just believe that it's, he's finally getting, like, reprimanded like he deserves. And I know we all saw the Gail, Gail King interview when he was going off, but to me, just seeing his reaction that way kind of shows that he knows that this was his, he has no more chances. And so that's what my thought about that. Um, with the Michael Jackson documentary, I really thought about how the, those gentlemen, they're grown now, but people, I was hearing a lot of things that people were talking about saying that they should have said something or told the truth back then, or they should have lied about this, lied about that, but they were also children back then. And I just think as a child, the capacity to understand that this big, famous, person is doing things to me it's i don't I, you know they probably had a difficult time but i think the documentary like i i know michael jackson's not alive to defend himself 
but I can't discredit if they really went through this situation. That's what, those are my thoughts. Kyla, has this changed your opinion of, of, of Kelly and uh, Michael Jackson in terms of, you know, throwing out all the music you have of them one way or the other? My opinion is completely different for the both of them. So as far as uh, Kelly, my opinion was pretty much always the same ever since I first found out about all of these women who she is has been allegedly abusing and assaulting and everything to that extent, especially because I remember, I don't know if you all remember when the BuzzFeed article dropped about the cult that R. Kelly had was actually for all in New York in the summer at ESPN, and we were all talking about it in the office, and it was buzzing and everything, and I literally still remember that. And that was when my perspective initially started shaping about R. Kelly and just the fact that how ridiculous this was and the fact that he really needs to get locked up for this and never spill out of day again. And now it's just continuing to be confirmed with the docuseries, with the interview. It's just, it's ridiculous that he still is walking and he continues to get away. But I'm pretty sure now it's no way that he's going to continue to get away with this. He's going to jail for the rest of his life, and that's it. And as far as he said, the music, R. Kelly's blocked on my Spotify. All of his songs, all his features, everything deleted on my phone. I can't hear his voice without thinking each song was written or each song was sang with one of those young women in mind. And even... It's ironic how in the documentary they talked about the connection between R. Kelly and Michael Jackson and because You Are Not Alone was actually allegedly about one of the young women who R. Kelly had been abusing and she had a miscarriage. And he wrote the song about her and, Mark, um, and Michael Jackson sang the song, which was, when I found that out, I could I can't think about or hear You Are Not Alone without thinking about R. Kelly and that young lady. And then as far as Michael Jackson, my viewpoint is a little different just because we've kind of heard it, but we never really had any substantial hard evidence about anything happening with these young boys at Neverland, especially because, you know, he was alive when you first heard it, but you still didn't hear anything. And still all these years preceding his death now is coming out. I don't think it's fair to try to take away from his legacy and like Simone said he can't defend himself and I don't think that's fair to him and I just don't appreciate that Yeah. Well, what, what are your just before I let you guys go uh, and I really don't want to let you guys go and you'll be rodent fellows forever uh, but what um, <laughs> what what um, are your are your peers saying you know like at Morgan at, at R. Kelly because I mean I'm thinking that these guys like Jackson is I mean, these guys are old heads I mean they're like you know they're not of your generation uh, what what are, are are people talking about it on campus? I mean, what what are some of the conversations that your peers are having about Kelly and Jackson? I've heard more about R. Kelly than I have about Michael Jackson, maybe because, like you said, R. Kelly is a little closer to our generation, I guess, and a little more recent. And also because, you know, R. Kelly, is it's more things happening because he's alive, he's saying things, he's in the public spotlight still, and the same doesn't go for Michael Jackson. And because our parents grew up, like, listening to Michael Jackson, we grew up listening to him, and it was always, he was this role model. R. Kelly was never a role model or anything of substantial positivity in our lives, so it was already, he was this sex symbol or 
something like that. And now all the pieces just add up so it just makes sense. So it's just more discussed, if anything, that I've seen my student body talk about and even a peer advocacy group that I'm a part of in partnership with the Student Counseling Center on campus. We've discussed trying to do an open discussion and like a panel about all of these documentaries and everything coming out and how it's beginning to spark conversation, which is good because we don't talk about sexual abuse enough like we should, and that's the purpose of our organization anyway. But R. Kelly in specific because it is women who are out there who may not think that they are being taken advantage of or manipulated or abused, and that's very common within our age bracket as college women. So we have discussed definitely having some type of event so young women can understand if this is happening to you, it's not okay, and it is okay to leave. And we think that that's a discussion that wasn't had early enough or may not have been had at all with the young women and the situations with R. Kelly. Before we, you know, Kyla, last year, or one of the podcasts, you probably one of the most riveting uh, podcasts we did, you, you basically said that you were a survivor of, or had been a victim of sexual abuse. Does, mm-hmm. does that, mm-hmm. when you hear something like that, how does it make you feel? How do you react when you see this? Do you understand maybe the, 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 the psychology, the mentality of the women? So I definitely understand when the young ladies on documentary spoke and they said, yeah, well, this is how I felt. He told me he loved me. He told me this. And I knew that I had to believe him. It makes sense because especially when it's someone like that, he's someone who's in the national, international spotlight. He's this star. And he's selling these dreams and he's famous. And if this famous man who's R. Kelly is telling me that he loves me, then who am I to tell him that he's abusing me or that this isn't right? I think the important thing is finally coming to your senses and realizing that what they were doing was not okay. But as long as you get out, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter about blaming yourself. It doesn't matter about feeling guilty, but it just matters about making sure that you're okay, your mental health is okay, and that you're no longer in that situation that was harming yourself. Now, Simone, uh, among your peers, uh, what are they talking about? Or are they talking about Kelly or Michael Jackson? Um, there's definitely more talk about um, R. Kelly just because it is closer to, I guess, the time period of uh, I was born in 92, so I was kind of, you know, later later on in the years, I was more in, the, in that era. But this it's the same conversation that pretty much Kyla went over of just, you know, realizing that a lot of times it can be a situation that you feel like you can't get out of, but, you know, it, it, it takes some mental, it takes a, lot, a huge mental toll on you, and some people are very manipulative. And it's, it's something that, you you know, once you get out, you do need to see seek professional help to be able to uh, heal from that situation. Um, so I just think that more, most, I mean, most people are just talking about just the situation at hand, but I also realized, um, even just for myself, how big the situation is and how many people really don't speak on their experience. And now people are more comfortable to come out and tell and, and talk about their story, and which is in a way, it's in a, it's positive that people are able to talk and get the help they need now. So that's definitely what's going on. Well, listen, thank you, guys. Uh, our guests, our special guests, uh, two former Roden Fellows, Kyla Wright of Hampton University, headed towards Syracuse, 
and of course the wonderful Simone Benson, currently at Morgan State, uh, headed toward the University of Maryland School of Journalism. So listen, we miss you guys. Happy that you were with us, and uh, don't be strangers. Keep in touch. Absolutely. All right, hey guys, thank you, thank you guys so much. You're the best. Kyla and Simone left before we can give you their um, Twitter handles. So, in case you want to reach Kyla Wright, you can reach her at Kyla Wright Media. That's K-Y-L-A-W-R-I-G-H-T Media. And Simone Benson can be reached at I am Simone Ashley. And you can follow me on Twitter at W.C. Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Special thanks for Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Get all of your HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bamani Jones and The Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.